Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. The Dozen Things topic is split into two episodes, and this is the second one. Each one is a brain dump of information. Hey, more than you might get in four years of landscape architecture school or two years at your local community college. I'm, of course, just kidding. This podcast summary is more like a year of L.A. school, a year that likely won't be offered because you'll be busy worshiping at the altar of the cult of personality of famous landscape architects instead, rather than gaining much practical knowledge. If you're in a landscape architectural program, don't mention that you might be leaning in on residential design. You'll be treated likely like a red-headed stepchild thereafter and relegated to the Hort program, if they have one, where designers, it appears, go to die. Or frankly, are resurrected and integrated into the fascinating world of flora in an innovative Hort program. God forbid, something many landscape architects think wistfully about later in their careers, while they're chained to desks, drawing parking lots, and planned unit developments. I know that's harsh, but I have an axe to grind, a tool that we never discussed as part of my landscape architectural program because, well, why get your hands dirty? As we noted in the prior episode, in part one, we covered number one, consulting and design, two, demo and hauling with transplanting, three, grading, four, soils and mulches, five, drainage, and six, boulders and stone. In this episode, part two, we'll be talking about seven, paving and steps, eight, carpentry, nine, planting, yes, we're going to compress it into a few short minutes, ten, irrigation and lighting, eleven, water features, and twelve, landscape care. The final bonus round is number thirteen, garden art. So let's get started. To start part two, for item number seven, we're talking about paving and wall step construction. This is a key facet of what we do. Whether it's an outdoor patio area, connecting paths, a driveway, or a motor court or sidewalk area, a fire pit gathering space, or something of that nature, we will consider it hardscape construction, most typically as a tumbled uh, sunset paver arrangement, but also as flagstone or perhaps concrete. Keep in mind that we are referring to work here in the Pacific Northwest. With this in mind, one place to start is the base material for the paving area. This is typically what we would call 5 eighths minus crushed rock. At a depth of four to six inches or more, this material is compacted with a machine and we consider it in the trade at its minus designation, indicative that it would include fine materials as well, so as to be able to be compacted. When we talk about putting in artificial turf, for example, which is really just a form of plastic paving, it's put down as material over a 5 8 inch clear rock so as to better drain. This creates a bit of a problem with appropriate compaction to make a level surface, but usually does not pose a big problem for turf installers. What I might suggest is that new designers consider perhaps six different kinds of tumbled concrete pavers. These might be from companies here regionally, such as Abbotsford or Mutual Materials or Belgard. 
There are a number of products there, and it's important to familiarize yourself with not only the products and colors and pattern combinations, but also the general availability of the material and its relative cost per square foot. Different types of aspects of the work will increase the investment, such as cutting the edges or the amount of sand material to put into, say, a flagstone type pattern, emulating pavers such as Bellegarde's Arbel or Mutual Materials Slate and Paver. These are pavers that use a quite a bit of sand overall in the finish. The subgrade can also be done as a mortar set concrete pad, but we're generally disinclined to do work in this manner. It's a lot of extra work and adds a good bit to the cost for the client. Wall construction can be done any number of ways. In order to consider the general investment for the potential client, you might look at a boulder type small format basalt or granite wall, we talked about those in the previous episode, as being the most inexpensive thing to make, followed by an inexpensive modular block set on a level base course of compacted crushed rock. With a drainage course behind, using an uphill clean out as we discussed in the drainage section of this episode prior, this is a very typical type of construction as well. More upgraded walls might include lead stone or what we call dry stack stone regionally in the trade, which can be another half again to twice as much as a corresponding modular block wall to install. You can also build a wall with pressure treated lumber, although this is not necessarily what I would call good construction, with this kind of wall material generally failing over a short period of time. There are also precast concrete walls, corten steel and metal wall construction and veneer stone, either in the fiberglass type material you find with Eldorado type stone to the cut stone products that are also available in a tile type form. These are typically put on a CMU type of concrete masonry unit base behind which uh, is of course its own, it's its own wall construction in and of itself. Walls are typically marketed as a per face foot charge with a minimum range, although it's not unusual to see them marketed as a lump sum or something of that nature as well. With steps, there are a number of considerations to take into mind. The first is to say, as a simple rule, two times the tread is the riser. I think that the actual dimension is something like 2.24 or something of that nature, but you want to be very careful about how you arrange that. If you do an ultra wide tread and you do a very low height riser, something like a courthouse step, for example, you can really be creating a trip hazard. So keep that in mind. When we consider number eight, carpentry, we're usually thinking about decks, fences, and wood walkways, stair jacks and railings, and things of that nature. I don't think you'll find two deck builders that bid installation in the same way, because the work itself is very complex and dependent upon a skilled subset of workers that are very difficult to find and manage. What I will suggest for potential clients is that they look first at the most elegant basic material, and then they consider upgrades from there. When it comes to decking, what we're thinking about most basically is a cedar deck with dug fir substructure. The footing of the post and the on-center spacing of the beams and joists is critical for the landscape designer. This will typically involve a permit and framing plan for decks that are somewhere above 30 inches above grade or so. Railings need to be considered with an on-center picket spacing of about four inches or so, about the size of a child's head, depending on your municipal code. When we talk about deck finishes, we're usually talking about cedar as a basic finish, and then the most important thing is to look at hardwoods, the imported hardwoods, as an upgraded finish, and the recycled materials, such as Trex or Timbertech or Azek, as perhaps a custom material. 
I don't know that these materials are so recycled as they claim to be, and they do not necessarily lend themselves to recycling afterwards, but then neither does pressure-treated wood for that matter. You're typically looking at square footage for decks, and then you're looking at lineal footage for railing, and then what I might call uh, a suggestion is you look at the steps as very small little decks unto themselves and count the steps and figure the square footage from there. As a designer, it's sometimes difficult to figure out how to charge for this kind of design work in its design stage, and that you just don't know whether the work you're doing is going to be allowed for permit or approved or adjusted a lot overall. But if you get a sense of it, and you can put together your plan package with some kind of reliable workmanship, you can get a good sense of how you want to price the work going forward. For fence material, we're typically looking at lineal footage installation, and we're considering everything from a picket fence type arrangement to an estate style fence, or a maximum six foot per code in most municipalities allowance, and a minimum distance from a property line. The wood the, the fence might be a wood or it might be a metal fence, aluminum or, or wrought iron. The on-center spacing for the post is usually around eight feet or so. And most of the fence builders, this is what most of them do. The fence builders are the best type of installers for this kind of thing overall. We'll bid it as a perlineal foot arrangement with a minimum. Gates are a special consideration, and these might be done and cut with arbors above. I'm usually suggesting to clients they consider a more deluxe thumb latch assembly rather than a reach over latch for a gate. The vast and complex subject of number nine is planting. This would include everything from trees to shrubs to perennials and ground cover, and to a lesser extent for us anyway, annuals and bulbs as well. The first thing to consider is the sizing of materials. Trees are typically sized by a caliper at DBH or diameter breast high. This might be trees ranging from three quarters of an inch to six inches or more overall. This is a connotation that ties typically to deciduous flowering or fall coloring or fruit trees. Many conifers are sold by height overall. This might be given in a two foot range of say eight to 10 or 10 to 12 or so. Commercial material is typically sold in sizes from four inch pots to 25 gallon containers. There are some variations in between, but typically four inch, one gallon, two and three gallon, five gallon and 15 gallon is what you're gonna be encountering. One aspect of the work that needs to be taken into consideration is the seasonal availability of plant material. Using holidays again in order to mark the times of the year, you might consider that bare root season usually occurs around January until late February or so. This is a time in which bare root trees such as birches or dogwood or something of that nature are available at a very inexpensive price and can be transported and planted quite easily. In March, the same trees are starting to be potted up and as such will then increase in weight overall and the attendant investment for the tree. Bald and burlap trees are typically sold starting in October or so up until February and may or may not be readily available at other times of the year. These trees are usually dug in fall and then made available around Halloween or so. It's important to note that from September until the beginning of the following year, you will see a general diminishment in overall plant availability corresponding with the shedding of inventory by your nursery suppliers. This inventory is picked up again, usually starting in very late winter to early spring, and reaches its height of availability sometime in mid-spring to early summer. Understanding the availability of plant materials and how these can vary based upon the season will help you to specify the material and stage your work effectively. If you check locally with your preferred plant supplier, you can start to monitor an ongoing inventory of 
plant material over the course of the year, and you'll be able to specify more effectively with regard to plant materials overall. Because the range of botanicals is so vast and the myriad variety is so complex, I think it's good for new designers to isolate their selections to six to 12 items in each category. This will enable a young designer to put together a finite list of plants that they can work to better understand. In this regard, I'm talking about six deciduous trees and six evergreen. If you want to expand upon that, consider six flowering, six shade trees, six fruit trees, six broadleaf evergreen trees. For shrubs, six evergreen and six deciduous, expanding into sun and shade, variegation, berries, fragrant shrubs, leaf and flower color varietals, texture variations, and other categories. When we think of trees, we're typically thinking in terms of deciduous or evergreen trees in general. With deciduous trees, we're usually talking about flowering and fruit trees and trees for fall color. I would submit that the prudent size to plant trees starts at about 8 to 10 feet or so, and this would correspond with about a 3-inch, three 3-quarter three inch caliper and larger trunk size. Cross-pollinating varieties need to be considered for fruit trees in many cases, and you'll want to be aware of the size availability on larger materials based upon the season, as I mentioned before. For shrub material, you'll generally differentiate between 5-gallon and 1-gallon most commonly. For shrubs, it's important to make the distinction between commonly available utility plants and those that are generally more of an investment overall. Ilex, laurel, and euonymus, for example, might be a commonly available plant, whereas camellia, physocarpus, or daphne would be an upgraded item. Another point to consider is that some plant materials have been moved from a southern climate to a northern climate, or vice versa. This can affect the plant's initial performance, especially in the first year. A greenhouse-grown item that has moved from southern California to the Pacific Northwest might be shocked during the first winter, even though it is a plant that is relatively cold-hardy once established. Conversely, a plant grown in Canada and moved to Southern California is going to have a very tough time over the first summer, likely, even though the plant may be durable in the sun. It's become really hard to keep up with all the many varietals of perennials that are coming on the market over the course of a given year. Don't get too caught up in all of the new varieties. In some cases, the new releases just don't stick, and you won't really see them over the long term. Try to focus instead on well-established varieties, and you will likely do better regarding availability and hardiness. Listen to the plant hybrids episode that we put out a few weeks ago, if you have a chance as well for more information on this. Almost all perennials are planted at a one-gallon size because of the ready availability of this size and the fact that most perennials die back almost completely over the winter. Ground cover might be specified from a 4-inch pot size to a 1-gallon size typically, and then installed with an on-center spacing planting method. This is typically from 24 inches to 4 feet overall. A grid system might be utilized to standardize spacing, and you can use an online material estimator if you need it to help calculate ground cover needed for bed area based upon this on-center spacing. Lawns are a special category, and could really be an entire episode unto itself. Suffice it to say that here in the Pacific Northwest, lawns really don't want to be here, preferring an alkaline-type soil environment rather than the acidic native soils that we find locally. Beyond all of the environmental issues surrounding lawn installations and how they negatively affect water usage and the ongoing care contributing to air and noise pollution, phosphorus runoff, and destruction of natural habitat, we find ourselves in a position to be specifying lawns on a routine basis. Unless you are a specialty environmental company, it's likely you would be installing lawns at some point. 
In Florida, you might be installing St. Augustine grass, but here in Seattle, it's typically a fescue blend seed, short for sunny areas and taller for shade areas. The important distinction for us in the Pacific Northwest is that the subgrade preparation for the soil is done properly. This involves rototilling, usually at a depth of about eight inches or so, the depth of most commercial rototillers. This will usually differentiate from the landscape architectural specification for a lawn, running a deeper subgrade preparation, but that is usually because the landscape architects don't understand how deep typical rototillers will go. That being said, whether you're following the spec or not, rototilling prior is a must, and we would normally suggest that new soil is also incorporated into the subgrade. In this case, not a compost, but a two-way mix or a finer soil, and it's rototilled in accordingly. Lime will also be suggested, and a finished grade of soil placed over the top surface, before which it is rock raked, cleaned up, and leveled, and ready then for a lawn installation. The lawn installation will typically be done either by hand seeding or by hydro seeding or as a sod installation. When hydro seeding is done, it's important to note that these subcontract companies that do hydro seeding have a minimum installation fee, so you cannot assess these areas in small square footage overall. Be careful about that. With any type of seed application, it's important to note the time of year that it's going to be done, and this can get you in trouble. If you're installing a fall project and the lawn is to be done absolutely last in the manner of painting yourself out of the corner of the kitchen. With that in mind, you'll want to make sure that you punch the list, you punch list the lawn and you have a follow-up visit done in springtime so as to ensure that the lawn receives additional seed, perhaps after March or so. The last freeze date in Washington, for example, might be around April 15th or so in some cases. There are, of course, other types of planting to consider, whether we're talking about topiary installations or specimen trees or espaliers or other types of specialty plantings. Plants in pots or in large specified areas of native material for mitigation or remediation are a completely different type of planting effort. For areas that are considered as lawn, now we're talking about meadow mixes and eco lawns and clover seed mixes and perennial and seed combination installations so as to make more of a rough meadow arrangement. When you do a meadow mix or a wallflower mix, you'll want to be conscious of the fact that these flower mixes will typically revert to what we might call a monoculture over time. And as such, they need to be replenished with new seed, typically every spring. This is something that the client would need to be advised about in order to keep the area fresh and colorful. There is, of course, a lot more talk about this with regard to planting, so we can barely touch on the subject here. Gather your resources and catalog books and visit your local nursery wholesaler, checking their inventories online, and getting well-versed in the availability and the cadence of plant sourcing throughout the year. A very important facet of your work will be to try to understand the difficulties in plant material availability. <clears throat> principally conifers, where we see rapid species die back now, corresponding with the onset of more dramatic climate change and the lengthening of summers. What we're finding in part is that insect activity that prolongs over the warm season is killing off much of the conifer canopy that we have regionally. And this will likely not change in the coming years. So specify conifers carefully and with a consideration of wildlife and habitat and with a concern about whether you're mitigating or contributing to climate change in your own small way. Irrigation and lighting make up number 10 among the dozen things that we do, and I think I'll have to say that these two topics are probably the most important, least covered subjects in the landscape design education field. That is to say, you really just don't learn about irrigation and lighting in school, not to any great degree. With regard to irrigation, I will say 
some things here that are relatively controversial and you don't necessarily have to agree, but my thoughts have been carefully developed over time as we have put in many irrigation systems and I've had to educate myself about this kind of thing and develop some quick methods to estimate them. I like to compartmentalize complex things into more understandable units. You probably know that. And there's no better way to do it than with irrigation. I like to make it a little bit less than technical and easy here. So stay with me and give me some wiggle room. You, we won't be talking about PSI or feet of head or pressure loss. The first thing I'd say is that you need to look at each section of irrigation as a valve or a zone. Counting zones and adjusting for size and access, etc., will drive the cost. The number of valves and zones will usually be an indicator of the investment for the system. Initially, if you're considering a sprinkler system for a home, you'll need to know where the water meter is located. The run-up from the water meter to the valve units and the corresponding hookup of the clock or the timer, usually in the garage, you might consider it as a zone unto itself. The point of connection at the street is a permit item. Usually a backflow preventer and a pressure regulator are installed here, that type of thing. The corresponding zones then are made up of usually three types. The first is what we might call rotors or large format heads. These will throw somewhere between 20 and 40 feet or more. You'll usually, under standard pressure, get about six or eight rotors per zone, depending of course on the length of pipe in all cases. Just for ease of math, you might look at how many areas you can cover in 40-foot swaths of spray, and then in turn will make up a zone when you reach six heads. This gives you an easy way to cover a large lawn area and figure out how many zones it might likely take. Correspondingly, the second category is pop-up spray heads, which might be a 4-inch or a 6-inch plus pop-up nozzle. These are, there's a wide variety of these, and they will spray anywhere from 2 feet to 12 feet or so, depending on the type of nozzle, its spray pattern, and how far it's stopped down. You'll usually factor in anywhere from 12 to 18 pop-ups per zone, and if you factor in the narrow beds around the foundation of a house, this will give you a good idea of how many zones these areas will take. The third category might be what is mischaracterized as drip, but is usually a mini emitter spray head in which you can get a myriad number of these per zone. And they're connected with a spaghetti type line that is staked every few feet and exposed above ground. This is what you might use in a raised bed in some cases and more and more so uh, overall now in landscape beds in particular now that we're becoming more water conscious and drip is becoming an overused buzzword. Speaking about that, the first heresy about irrigation anyway is to say that I'm not a big fan of drip or mini spray emitters for a number of reasons. Folks will typically dig through the lines because they're exposed and the small size of the orifice will easily clog. This kind of system is always breaking down and creating some kind of a nightmare from a maintenance standpoint, so I'm not a big proponent of these kinds of sprinkler layouts. The other issue is that if it's a mini spray, it's typically very plant-centric in its emitter placement. It doesn't cover the beds to any great degree. You cannot necessarily get a reliable covering of ground cover to spread out and form a dense mat on the ground with this kind of a layout. The plants typically want to stay near where the water is, and if it's very limited in its location, sometimes it's difficult for the plant to spread out. No, I'm not a big fan of drip. So overall, there's a lot to consider with an irrigation system, but the initial thing is to understand the three types of sprays and how many you can get per valve in order to figure out your general investment per zone. Multiplying this out might give you an overall investment for an irrigation system, or you might want to draw up an easy layout when you consider the individual cost or desired unit price per valve.
This, of course, can vary based upon the length of PVC line that's trenched underground or the method of installation and a number of other considerations. I might suggest you go to the Rainbird and Hunter websites and comb through their documents and research and literature. You'll find a lot of great information there. Also, order a binder catalog from any of these suppliers and they'll be happy to send one to you. Lighting is another category that's frequently discussed, but is often one of the first things to fall out of a proposal that has a limited budget. Because of this, we'll usually list it as an option if it's not already included for a client. For ease of discussion, I would break lighting into three broad categories and a number of subsets. The three broadest categories are path lights or mushroom type lights along a path system, up lights or bullet type lights that might highlight a tree or a focal point, and down lights or other types of lights that are either hanging down from a tree or in a pond or a wall wash or a niche light under a wall cap reveal or as a sconce or something like that. These are typically all low voltage LED fixtures now and use very little electricity. The new types of luminaires are very long lasting and they don't require us to do the same wiring calculations that we had to do years ago. The most common complaint you'll hear from clients is that they're relatively dim overall, and if that's the case, you want to make sure that your luminaire is bright enough for the type of lighting you are considering. We'll typically offer a 10 light package as an option that includes a transformer. There are a number of upgraded systems as well, and the most popular being Luxor, which gives a quite a bit more variation in light, including programming variability that allows you to highlight your property in holiday colors or the colors of your favorite sports team. Luxor gets a bit out of control budget-wise and can get quite a bit costly, but in so doing, it's quite a profit center for design-build companies that do this kind of work. But just so you know, Luxor has lots of colors, but they don't offer the New England Patriot colors. They're not offered. I'm just kidding there. I, I like talking to Patriot fans. When I do, I usually ask for large fries. I'm joking, really. I don't talk to Patriots fans. Our number 11 on our list of a dozen items is the wild world of water features and one of the most exciting things that we can build. When we think of water features, there are a myriad of styles to consider, but let's consider for a moment a couple of simple assemblies that make up most of what we're going to be building. The most common thing is a columnar type unit feature or a spill rock. This might be a small assemblage that is a rock cobble base with an accent feature that's a rock column, a spilling pot, a millstone, a flat feature rock that's drilled, or something of this nature. The next thing up is a full pond, which might be a waterfall and a stream with a lower pond vessel area. Other considerations are fountains that might be formalized as tiered units or spillways built into a modular type wall with a laminar flow, or other types of water features that can take us down the rabbit hole, so let's keep it simple. Most underlying water features are made up of an underliner, kind of like a felted screen door material, an EPDM rubber type fish friendly liner, the thickness of say a bicycle tube, a real one, you know, the Stingray bikes, not some lightweight cobalt model, and corresponding components that make up a unified kit. Popularized most commonly by Aquascapes out of Chicago, a lot of pond kits now are made up of the liner and underliner with a corresponding skimmer, a pump, filter media, and what's called the biofalls and a flexible return line. You'll want to check your municipal codes to make sure that you, sure that you understand the maximum depth of your pond, which may be limited to only about 20-24 inches or so. This is in order to avoid it becoming what we might call, in a legal sense, an attractive nuisance. In this regard, if the pond is deeper than this, it becomes essentially somewhat like a swimming pool and requires a perimeter fence and a self-closing gate with a permit. So 
do be sure that your installation is completely legal. When you're specifying the work, you'll want to make a provision for a trench for a GFI receptacle for the electrical installation, and that is the basis for most of the work. For a small columnar type unit, we might incorporate what we call an aqua box or something of that nature. That's kind of like a milk crate on steroids, you might call it. Basically a heavy panel assembled plastic box that's left open as a void. This allows us to dig a vessel area as a hole and fill it with rock. And if the aqua boxes are placed properly, these will form a void for the water within which the water can gather. You want to make sure that any kind of lower vessel has enough volume to generate the water needed to go up the stream or up the vessel without emptying out the lower part. The biofalls is basically a chamber the size of a dishwasher or something of that size in which the water flows up through some filter media and flows out through a reliable weir to form a fall area. Covered with a nasty looking faux rat rock plastic cap from the supplier, this is usually replaced with a nice piece of flagstone to give it a natural look. The water flows through the pond area and is gathered in a skimmer, which is a smaller box within which is contained the pump. The pump is usually located below a skimmer bag or a hard-shelled net in media so that the skimmer can be kept clean and a leaf debris net lifted out and easily emptied. Keep in mind that the system is typically based upon a small pump that's running all the time, and as such it will burn out over a number of years and needs to be easily accessible and able to be removed and replaced. With regard to assemblies that are ponds, if we do have the adequate depth, you can add fish. There's a lot of anecdotal information around fish, but what I will say is that you need about one inch of fish for every two feet of pond area. This isn't scientific. This is just my opinion. Now, that's not to say that for a hundred square foot pond, you should have a 50 inch fifth, you know, fish in there, perhaps like a big sturgeon or something like that wallowing around. That's not, that's not really the good way to go, but you might have a mixture of fish that overall will measure 50 inches in combinations of two inch to six inch so as to properly accommodate the pond ratio. Fish can only be introduced when the water reaches a moderately warmer temperature of 55 degrees or warmer. So you want to be careful about the introduction of the fish. But once they're introduced and the pond is aged perhaps a month before that introduction, the fish can survive almost completely on their own without any supplemental feeding. You'll also want to consider adding water plants that are floating plants that have fibrous roots like hyacinth or perhaps plants that can be physically planted with floating leaves to provide more shade to the water, such as water lilies. And you'll also want to consider rushes and sedges and grasses of that type. The general consensus is that the shadier the pond environment, the less algae bloom you'll see in the pond. And as a function of that, the pond will appear cleaner. I think it's important to educate clients to understand that their ponds are not going to be glacial alpine waterfalls, but will over time have some natural algae, and that should be expected. So long as you can see the bottom of your pond, then it should be considered as sufficiently clean, in my view. The next to last item is perhaps the most important item on the list, and that is number 12, landscape care. No matter how imaginative and well-built your landscape outdoor design might be, it will absolutely suffer without the proper care over the years. When you think about landscape care, unfortunately in our trade, we're relegated to thinking about calendar care and the products that we spray and apply in our landscapes. That's the way that our trade magazines would have you think about caring for an outdoor environment. That is, which product to buy next. Fortunately though, we have a great resources at our disposal and the ability to steward our own businesses. While we can't rely on our own trade magazines to help us, except in the pragmatic ways of building business and thinking about equipment to purchase, 
we really can't rely on our trade journals to speak clearly on pesticide and herbicide products, and don't get me going on the immigration. Instead, we need to look at the research output from our university agricultural extensions, and with an eye on the sources and funding for research to be sure, actual recommendations for landscape care rather than anecdotal opinions or product-oriented advertorials. In this sense, we need to be representative of an, of, of an IPM methodology and clear in our thinking about understanding natural processes and educating our clients in understanding and proactively desiring a different standard of beauty than we've seen in decades past. That's not to say that we're completely embracing chaos and imperfection, but we are recognizing the pattern and sensibility and positive growth that we experience, say, in our own children as a metaphor, not sheltered and protected in the confines of a greenhouse, but taken outside to experience and grow in the sun and the wind and the air. One metric for this in landscape care is to ask yourself, if the care itself is protecting or destroying healthful habitat in the area, is it potentially damaging the watershed? Is it encouraging invasive weed growth or accumulating in the soil for some future generation to deal with? What some have come to call calendar care isn't is in and of itself part of the problem. When an organized system like this is put together in order to apply and sell and reorder and reapply products seasonally, rather than to address the issues of microclimate and habitat on an individual site, you'll know that the care is based on a knee-jerk methodology, rather than any kind of natural desire for real care or stewardship of the environment. Okay, enough of that soapbox. And now let's discuss a little bit of an overview of some of the aspects of landscape care. Pruning is a key issue that vexes a lot of landscape designers, and folks speak anecdotally about it without taking the time to fully understand it. Certainly, there are some great gardeners out there and talented designers that know what they're doing and can relate proper pruning strategies to their clients. When pruning is based upon flowering, this can help you your strategy to know when to prune. Early spring bloomers like forsythia and lilac flower from buds formed the prior year. These are pruned immediately after bloom. Hydrangea, one of the more problematic plants to explain, is pruned most generally before midsummer. Do not prune these in winter or early spring, or you'll be cutting off buds. But the new reblooming types are not as critical to seasonally prune as they may bloom freely on new and old wood. Summer bloomers, such as crepe myrtle, are pruned in winter. Roses are pruned generally after bloom. Other woody shrubs not grown for flower might be pruned almost any time, but generally not in late autumn. Prune shade trees in winter so as to inhibit disease. Tree fruit might be more generally pruned in late winter so as to open up the tree canopy for light. Many of the conifers are pinched and pruned early in spring. Perennial flowers, I will suggest deadheading in early fall or early spring, unless you recommend leaving seed heads for wildlife. Types of pruning include crown thinning, a type of pruning usually performed on overgrown trees to get rid of weak branches. Other types of pruning include crown raising, crown reduction, crown cleaning or deadwood pruning, crown res restoration, vista pruning, and of course espalier pruning. Lawn care is its own special category and certainly a low margin, high volume cash cow for maintenance services that are applying product. Again, this is one of those things that might be seen as heresy in the landscape care trades, but I, I think you have to ask yourself as a company whether you're really applying the product for the right reasons. Certainly a cosmetic change can take place when a lot of fertilizer is applied, but the benefits to the environment of excess phosphorus in particular 
I think are offsetting and need to be taken into consideration. Here in the Pacific Northwest, you'll find that the big box stores are recommending that you fertilize almost every season. Certainly, they're recommending that you apply fertilizer in spring and in fall in particular. In order to keep a lawn well-maintained, the most critical aspect to it is to keep the subgrade permeable. This is largely affected by aerating the lawn twice a year, and at the same time, applying lime, which is a calcified shell that tends to keep the soil a bit more permeable. In no event are you required to fertilize your lawn more than once a year. The best time to do this is around Labor Day, and for the Pacific Northwest lawns in particular, to apply a 3-1-2 ratio organic fertilizer. We don't recommend organic fertilizer in order to be all woo-woo and crystals about it, but really because an organic fertilizer will typically be a more slow-release product, and as such, will not be as easily rinsed out in wet weather. Some raking and an application of fine soil with a periodic seeding in fall and in spring is in order, preferably right after Labor Day, and depending on your client, right around Easter, Ramadan, or Passover. For the baker's dozen, let's go one more bonus round with number 13, what we might call garden art. As a designer, you can source and specify furniture and shade sales and pots and sculpture, fountains, bird baths, bird houses, murals, statuary, and a wide range of other items that might reflect yours or a client's eclectic tastes. I think one of the most pleasurable things to do in our trade is to research and specify and install specialty items of this type, especially rare and large and elegant items. We have a massive stone that we placed years ago that I call the Palabra Stone. It was a $20,000 boulder for our client, a single placement weighing in at just over two tons. It's a large and beautifully hand-polished piece of marble, granite, striated with jade. It was fascinating to figure out how to set and move it. And in its final placement, it's been a core inspiration of my work over the last decade. In another instance, we carefully raised a huge piece of hand-painted and sandblasted cedar root wad onto the roof of a courtyard for a school. It is a chaotically beautiful and brightly colored yellow blaze of contorted wood that you can see from the highway driving through Seattle. People scratched their heads about the idea, but once it was in place, I think everybody recognized that it provided a special and unique character for the large playground area within which it was set. A number of years ago, a client asked me for an absolutely huge metal T-Rex sculpture. I've never forgotten it, and I'm still looking for it. I love stuff like that. If you were to visit the nursery, you'll see antique pieces from the old Seattle Music Hall, demolished over 100 years ago. Vintage concrete filigree cornice sections that I think are uniquely elegant and beautifully historic. We have pieces of the old Calacala Ferry that were purchased at auction. The most expensive piece, the capstan unit, or the section where the anchor comes through the hull, looks like a piece of a wrecked car to some people. It's a fascinating piece of Seattle history waiting for the right garden to me, and sits rusting in a nursery side yard with viburnum and blueberries nearby. All of this is just to say that the world is your oyster here, and the items that you choose to orient and place in your outdoor environments can become the cornerstone of your work and can help you to reinvigorate your passion and stimulate your thinking in ways that you never thought possible. Garden art can do that. So that's the box of mixed confections I call the dozen things we do. I remember when I was originally starting out and how insurmountable it seemed to think how I might learn as much as I would need to in order to do my job well. 
hey, some would say that I never did and never did the job very well anyway. But even so, I feel like I've learned a lot over the years. We talked in another episode about the problems with landscape design education and individual aspects of academia that I think could be easily improved. But I do think it's up to each individual designer to self-educate. And this is, of course, part of your growth in your career anyway. You can never know enough. And therein lies the beauty of it all. As you are starting out, being able to compartmentalize the work a bit, like I'm talking about here, can give you a leg up, a head start, and set you down your circuitous career path. I can't wait to see how you pave it. Thanks again for listening.